Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Welcome to the final half of our two-part series with Michael McGrath, the CEO of Oasis m here in Australia. Last week in part one, we talked about Michael's own business growth and sale experience and the lessons he learned when reflecting on all of this in hindsight. If you missed that episode, we really recommend you go back and have a listen to it after this episode. But in today's episode, part two, we're taking a closer look at how Oasis works and their unique approach to M&A transactions. This is definitely helpful listening to our business brokers and advisors out there who are looking at new ways to add value to their clients. So don't go anywhere. Here we go. Ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to The Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area. And hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Michael, thank you so much for coming back to chat to us again on The Deal Room. In the last episode, we took a walk through your own personal experiences of building and selling your own business and then a second bite at the cherry of sales that gave you a different perspective. Today, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the model that you use in assisting your clients in selling their businesses or buying. I think you work on the buy side too, is that right? Yes, yes. Predominantly on the sell side, but we do a little bit of buy side work as well. Yeah. Okay. So maybe just give us a quick overview of Oasis and what you're doing now and who you work with. Yeah. So look, Oasis is a corporate advisory firm established in London by the founder, John Wilcox Jones, who continues to work and operate out of London. There are three branch offices over there, one in Regent Street in London, one in Falmouth and one in Reading. And we opened the office here in Sydney. This is our 11th year. So just just over 10 years ago. And we work nationally out of our office here in Sydney. Uh, We've currently got transactions going on in most states. And we're probably 90% engaged by the shareholders of established private companies who are looking to consider their options around an exit. We do quite a bit of advisory work around succession and around should I sell, shouldn't I sell, when should I sell. But predominantly, we're transaction people. And can I just talk about that sort of client breakdown? What does it look like in terms of, you know, what's the sort of target size of client yeah. or deal size? So, so enterprise value range for us is about five to 100 mil. So, I mean, typically we're, we're looking at businesses, you know, that are making a million plus EBIT, we, you know, up to probably 10 million EBITDA. I think down the smaller end, I mean, the dominance hierarchy is extremely relevant in M&A. So, you know, there are many more smaller deals going on than larger deals. So we have a predominance of five, 10 and $15 million type deals. Around the smaller end, we're less interested in earnings and more interested in the sector and what's going on. So we've represented some very small businesses who we sold to very large businesses because we like the sector and we think there's consolidation going on and we think there's attractiveness in the assets. So it's not just about the numbers. And so there are any sectors on your target list at the moment that you can talk about? <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, well, look, we we love manufacturing. So we, we like uh-huh. specialist niche manufacturers. We're representing a number at the moment. We're in touch with many more. Manufacturing gets a bad rap in Australia. But in fact, the reality is there are lots of good emerging manufacturing businesses in Australia that are producing world-class products. And they're extremely attractive to the right kinds of acquirers. 
We like technology. We're particularly interested in technology businesses that have got good IP, but probably lacking a bit of distribution. And a merger can solve that distribution Mm. challenge and can actually provide the vendor with a number of assets that are going to make a huge difference to them. Uh, and you know they can take a de-risk. So that that's been a good area for us technology. I would say in the last decade, and you know we're probably at the beginning of a digital revolution in real terms. So uh, you know that includes machine learning, AI. So we like that sector. We certainly like the chemical sector. We like the chemical cleaning sector. Would you believe? Right. Okay. That's. I mean, that's quite niche. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. And you know what we're seeing there is you know a number of large companies who are very acquisitive and quite a large number of emerging mid-sized businesses run by baby boomers who are going to have to retire in the next 10 years. So we see quite a bit of consolidation there. We go on and on, but certainly we think Australia is in quite a good place going forward, but we don't share the doom and gloom that a recession is inevitable. Well, it's interesting you say that. And I think what we should do is have you back for another podcast, Mike, and talk about, you know, the outlook for 2019, because I think that would be a really interesting area to focus on. Sure. And so I guess, you know, bringing it back to Oasis, I'm extremely interested in these areas that you're talking about that you're seeing opportunity or consolidation in. Yes. Maybe if we just talk about how Oasis works. And you talked a little bit about this in the last episode that we um, spoke on together where you're talking about your backstory. But maybe if you can walk us through what is it that Oasis does and and how are you different? How is your approach something different to, um, you know, other corporate advisors in the market? Yeah. Look, I mean, one of the ways we're different is that John Wilcox Jones, our founder, established in the mid-'80s that... um, the number one concern for an owner was not having it revealed that they were considering an exit. So we don't just talk about confidentiality at Oasis. We talk about anonymity. So we maintain our clients' anonymity until quite late in the process. And we only consider revealing our clients' identity once we've got a very well-qualified uh, shortlist. And we don't write information memorandum And we don't exchange a big fat document often uh, for a confidentiality agreement, which is extremely, uh, you know, which is often breached. Deals are done in stages. So our view is that, I mean, we we get to understand our client's asset very well and we have a lot of information that we collect, but we slice and dice that and redact it. And the most intelligent thing we ever ask a potential buyer is what, once they're qualified, is what further information do you require to go to the next stage? only interested in providing information that ticks their boxes at each stage rather than a Mm. big brain dump. And we would only give information that's commensurate with the level of qualification that's gone on. And certainly we wouldn't be giving information away that we would consider sensitive, you know, commercially sensitive. And we would be pushing that can down the road to due diligence. You know, we're providing useful information, but we're trying to limit the impact of that information if a deal doesn't go ahead. That's a key part of our MO because the reality is that if if we have a target list of 60 or 70 potential acquirers, we'd be very lucky if more than five or six of those are fair dinkum. Mm. And so why would we tell 30 people that, you know, or 40 people or 50 people what we're doing when, in fact, we really only need to tell five or six at the most? And we can probably get indicative offers off those guys. Are there any, I mean, I find this um, a really interesting discussion uh, in terms of how much information you hand across and when. Have you seen this played out poorly before? There was a 
quite a sizable regional meat producer in New South Wales that a corporate advisory firm were representing. And, you know, within a few days of them going to the market, they, you know, were sending a big fat information memorandum with lots of sensitive information, including key clients. That business was pulled into a crisis meeting with one of the large grocers here and asked to explain itself. That was an extremely embarrassing and, you know, highly volatile situation for our client. And in fact, it wasn't our client. They became our client later after they'd sacked the original broker. But, you know, that, that's an example of what can happen. I mean, the other example is that staff and management, not just customers, but, you know, suppliers can find out. And an owner doesn't want to be fielding those questions mm-hmm. when, in fact, there's no deal being agreed and they, they may not sell. Yeah, I think we've got to be very careful as advisors who we tell what and when. And I think to rely only on an executed confidentiality agreement, I think is inadequate, really. Yeah. So we've got the, uh, you know, the anonymity side of your services and the process or the thought behind release of information. Are there any other strategies that you employ? Price is key. So everyone wants to know what's a business worth. And I actually listened to a podcast recently of yours that dealt with pricing, which was interesting. Mm. Look, I think our view on pricing is that it's very difficult to price, to accurately price, or to be definitive about what a business is worth, right? So you've got all the standard, you know, discounted cash flow, price earnings, multiple, you've got all these standard methodologies. And and largely, I would say, in the the world we we live in, which is a five to $100 million enterprise value, our view is that, there's such disparity between what buyers will pay for a business that it's almost impossible to accurately say definitively what a business is worth. And it's worth different amounts to different people, very legitimately. And the reason for that is that the acquirer will perhaps derive synergies. And the more important those synergies are and the, and the more of them there are, the more they're often prepared to pay. And that's a big variable in the equation. So our, our view on valuation is rather than waste a lot of time doing a desktop valuation, you're far better off looking at the market and saying, okay, what similar transactions have been done and at what prices have they, you know, those businesses been sold at and what's the range? And you'll find if you look at any sector, there's, I would say, at least nine out of ten sectors we look at or areas that we look at, at least nine out of ten, there's huge variations. How do you get that data then? Because I think getting data, you know, from my perspective, many people I talk to, it can be a little bit difficult unless we're dealing with entities that have to report publicly, so listed entities, for example. So how are you seeing ways to get the data? Yeah. Well, look, listed entities, I mean, there's lots of listed entities doing deals. So first of all, you've got to look globally. And you can't just look in Australia because there isn't really enough deals often. But you can certainly look globally and there are various data feeds that we subscribe to and our offices in London subscribe to. So you can pull data together and aggregate it reasonably straightforwardly. The issue is the interpretation of that data and, yeah. and, and its application to the specific situation. So there are lots of listed companies who have to report their deals and they're buying small private companies often. So the multiple and the transaction paid is relevant because they bought a private business. And there's normally a delta between the price earnings for a private business and the multiple that the acquirer are paying at. So you get six, seven, eight, ten of those and you aggregate them and you take out the outliers, you begin to get a range, right? 
Now, does that mean that you're going to get offers in that range? No, but it, it's something to compare yeah. an offer to. And it, it's intelligence that's useful. And we've used those. We've used that information. Mm-hmm. We recently moved an indicative offer from $6 million to $10 million based on our research that I've just described to you. We put it in front of the buyer and said, look, we think you're off market. Tell us where we're wrong. Here's the information mm-hmm. we've got. And they couldn't. And, you know, we began to walk them up and they accepted that. So it's not a panacea, it's part of the equation. But I'll give you an example. Of the last five deals we've done, four of those deals had a difference between the first and second offer of a minimum of 50% and in three cases, 100%. So double, right? And legitimate. And the alternative offers were fair dinkum. They weren't tire kicking, but they saw a different story. They weren't able to meet for various reasons. They weren't able to meet what the most strategic and motivated acquirer was able to do. And that story gets played out a lot. That throws traditional valuation methodology out the window. Yeah, absolutely. The reality is with with valuing a business, particularly a small to medium-sized private business, is there is no market for that business. So, you know, if you're on the stock exchange, your shares are traded every day. If, If you're a small private company, there is no market. You have to go and create that market. And you create that market through research. And that market's changing. Every three or four months, that market changes complexity and change. So one minute you've got a bunch of people who are acquiring, the next minute they've they've already bought, they're out the market. Then you've got other people that weren't acquiring who are in the market. So this is an organic, research-driven marketplace. Now, the reality is there's probably only one or two or maybe three genuine buyers at any one time for your business. And therefore, the job is to get to those people. To acknowledge that you might get three different offers from three people. There are no bad offers. You can reject them, but they're not bad. They just are. Mm. And that's the job, in our view, of an advisor is to get to that market, which is the equivalent of looking for a needle in a haystack at a point in time. I think when you do that, you stand a great chance of eventually surfacing that particular acquirer that's active, they know what they're looking for and why. And guess what? Your client happens to tick those, some, if not all of those boxes, becomes quite attractive. And then I think you can end up with an above average outcome, not guaranteed. You're guaranteed to do the work. You can't guarantee the outcome. And do you have any examples? I just love hearing the stories. I mean, we hear a lot of times from an advisor's perspective, them saying that they've gone and spoken to someone and someone's given them a, you know, an indication of the value of their business and they've had to you know, talk them down, basically give them the reality of where the market is that's not at the valuation that they've been provided in the past. Yes. What about on the flip side? Do you ever see businesses coming in and just not recognising the value that they're sitting on? They've been given, as you say, a desktop valuation that hasn't recognised the assets in their business to a full enough extent. It's such a contentious issue, valuation, and it, there's so much time and energy wasted on it potentially. We try and stay neutral on value. Right. Not sure. No. Like, we get a lot of information and we can talk to the customer, but we just don't really know until we've done the work. I mean, certainly we would look at evidence. Certainly we would look at what the vendor's attitude is. Certainly we would look at deals that have been done in the marketplace that are similar that we could perhaps draw inference from. But for the reasons I stated previously, you're going to a fresh market and you've got to speak to people and you've got to establish who's active and you've got to find out what they're looking for and why. You know, we sold a business once for 28 times its earnings, right? So wow. none of us were thinking about that, but that's what happened in reality. So we sold a business 
quite recently where the first offer on a no-names basis say there were only two real players in the market. One was New Zealand-based, one was Australian-based. And our client was a South Australian business. In real terms, the guy who bought the business, say, paid 11 million. And the guy who was second couldn't get past about five and a half, five and three quarters, right? And they were both genuine, both legitimate, both active, ticked all the boxes. There was only two of them who went to 100. Now, in reality, the reason for that was because one was going to graft that business into its existing operation and therefore was more interested in the gross profit than the net profit. And it had much more to play with. The New Zealand guy had to run that business as it was and therefore was bound by the net profit and Mm. didn't have as much room to play with. Both legitimate, nothing wrong with either offer. But the reality was there was much more room to manoeuvre and much more appetite with the guy that and there's there's a there's a good example of a delta of nearly a hundred percent well that's a very clear tip isn't it you know let's not focus so much on value in the market let's go find the strategic buyer who'll pay a far greater multiple of whatever's in the market let's do the work yeah and and let's speak to people let's not unnecessarily divulge identity but let's see what's going on in the market and let's qualify them and draw up a shortlist and see who's left. And, you know, we can be surprised to the upside and we can be surprised to the downside. The market will occasionally shun an asset that looks extremely good on paper, but for whatever reason, the market shuns it. Mm. And this is a reality that vendors are increasingly going to deal with in the next 10 years if the baby booms retire and we see a big shift of the wealth as private businesses are vended. We're going to see many more vendors than we are buyers in the market. And I think vendors are increasingly going to have to start to establish an intelligent plan B to just a trade sale being the only option. If we could, I'd really like to come back to your 28 times. <laughs> right. If it, so that, that sounds amazing. Can we just, just very quickly just talk about that as a business? How did you get such a high multiple? What was happening? We didn't get 28 times. We got 8 million. Now, it converted to 28 times. We didn't pitch it. We want 28 times. How do you value an IP-rich business with lots of technology and smarts, but Mm. their earnings are negligible? Valuation methodologies, you run out when when you stop making profit. If you're not making a profit, it's a nonsense to suggest that the business is worth nothing if you make nothing. The reality was that this was an IP-rich business in the software sector. And there was an extremely motivated strategic acquirer. And this piece of kit, this software, completely ticked their boxes on many, many different levels. And they asked us what the client wanted. And we went back to the client and said, look, we don't really do valuations. What do you want? And we did say, look, the richest deal we can find anywhere in the world was 28 times at this point for a similar operation in Canada. And we said, 28 times suggests 8 million. And he said, well, look, I'd be happy with six. And I said, well, look, let's, let's start at eight. We think we can defend that and see where we go. And the buyer was a long pause. And then he said, okay, we'll do it. So the deal got done at 8 million cash. I mean, I don't know what you call that really. I mean, how do you price that? I don't know. I mean, if he had stayed in that business and had come to us two years later and said, oh, I want to sell it now. And now I've got earnings of a million. We still might not have been able to get 8 mil. If that acquirer had gone and solved his problem elsewhere and there was no one to replace him, you're then back to a a, a much more humdrum analysis potentially. And this is the volatility, I think, that we're dealing with that owners and advisors and we, we in the industry have got to begin to accept. 
there's going to be volatility around pricing and pricing is elastic. I mean, one of the mistakes I see with owners is where they come up with an irrational number that solves their succession and retirement issues, but bears no relation to the asset they're trying to sell. We see that Mm. a lot. I want 10 mil. Okay. Well, that suggests 20 times earnings. You're making off. I know, but I want, I need 10 mil. What's that got to do with the business? I mean, managing expectations, what does that look like? I think it looks like, okay, what's the range that we could expect offers it? And then how do we expose ourselves to being surprised to the upside? Well, I think to do that, we've already explained that you probably go wide. Okay, Michael, thank you so much for all of your time today talking about your approach at Oasis. It's been a really interesting journey through the way you approach things. If our listeners want to contact you, what's the best way to do that? You can jump on our website, uh, www.oasisma.com.au or you can email me at michael at oasisma.com.au. Speak to one of my colleagues, Warwick or Lee, anytime as well. So, yeah, we'll be delighted to uh, have a chat with anybody that's uh, interested in talking to us. Absolutely fabulous. And for anyone who's on the move at the moment and didn't quite get the chance to jot that down, don't worry, we're linking to it all in our show notes. Okay, great, Michael. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap for our two-part series with Michael McGrath of Oasis m Now, in this episode, we zoomed in on how Oasis works and how they approach deal-making differently from other corporate advisors or broking firms. If you're interested to learn more about this unique approach to business exit, you can reach out to Michael at www.oasis.com ma.com.au or check out our show notes at thedealroompodcast.com where we'll link straight through to their website. There you'll also find a full transcript of this podcast episode if you'd really like to read it in more detail. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed what you heard today. And if you did, then I request that you please head over to The Deal Room on Apple Podcasts or your other favorite podcast player to get notifications straight to your phones whenever a new episode is out. Thanks for listening in. This has been Joanna Oki and The Deal Room Podcast, a podcast proudly brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. See you next time. Aspect Legal has a number of great services that help businesses prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready. We've also got a range of services to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. We provide a free consultation to discuss your proposed sale or acquisition. So see our show notes on how to book a time to speak with us or head over to our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Ladies and gentlemen, that will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to The Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. 